The What Matters podcast is brought to you by Siemens Smart Infrastructure. Siemens Smart Infrastructure is shaping the market for intelligent and adaptive infrastructure by connecting energy systems, buildings and industries. Combining the real and the digital world, it enhances the way people live and work and significantly improves efficiency and sustainability. Hello and welcome to episode three of What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. With me again are Michaela Hull from Agora Energy Vendor and Jan Rosenau from the Regulatory Assistance Project. Hi guys. I know it seems like a long time ago now, but did you all have a good Christmas? Morning. Yeah, it's been a busy period already. I mean, the, the, the last year felt pretty hectic and I was really looking for some respite, but it's relentless, isn't it? I mean, the January has already been very exciting in all sorts of ways. Hi, hi everybody. Same here. We had a break, but yeah, it uh, it just doesn't stop. Uh, and you know, just as one thing, when the commission published the taxonomy two hours before midnight on New Year's Eve, <laughs> that was mean. That was. That I was had mean. I had visions of you, Michaela, sat in the corner reading the taxonomy <laughs> as the as the ball dropped, as it were, for New Year. <laughs> yeah. Um, nice today we're joined. Today, we're joined by Greg Jackson, founder and CEO of Octopus Energy, a UK utility with around two and a half million customers, placing it among the largest power companies in the country, having only entered the market in 2016 and has recently expanded into new markets like Germany and Belgium. Octopus is also a pioneer of digital technology in the market and and is harnessing the power of 21st century tech to accelerate the uptake of green power. Greg, thanks for joining us today on What Matters. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Um, Greg, I want to start with uh, the recent energy price crisis, obviously something that's really affected utilities across Europe uh, and particularly in the UK. Um, from your point of view, how, uh, how, how can we stop this energy price crisis from happening again? And will there be significant fallout uh, from customers as a result of the crisis? Uh, look, I mean, first of all, we should say the crisis is really serious. Um, a three or fourfold increase in uh, something as vital to everyday life as the cost of gas is kind of um, an echo of what happened in the 1970s. And, and the way it was handled there led to power cuts and stagflation. Uh, so, you know, the macroeconomic impacts of this could be huge. And um, also the devastating impact on uh, households, particularly those on lower incomes, or frankly across the income range, it could be, you know, brutal. Um uh, in terms of what we can do to stop it happening again, I guess one of the very few positives here is that most commentators and politicians have recognised this is a fossil fuel crisis. Uh, it's not uh, caused by the move to net zero. And in fact, moving to net zero would have reduced or prevented this. Uh, and so, you know, what can we do? Well, every single wind turbine we build reduces our demand for gas and it's cheaper it was cheaper before the crisis, never mind now. The message is clear, build more wind. Absolutely. And I was, we've seen a number of uh, bankruptcies in the UK market, and I think a couple in the uh, in Europe. But why has the UK seen so many bankruptcies as a result? Actually, I'm not sure the UK stands that different than other countries. Um, uh, in Italy, there have been more than a dozen public failures. And because of the way that companies fail in Italy, it's actually quite opaque for a period of time. 
Uh, we reckon there are probably 30 or 40 in total. Uh, Germany's had a not dissimilar amount. And in Germany, you know, energy companies that were struggling have been handing their customers back to the uh, kind of regulated utilities. So uh, the, the forms of failure may differ, but the reality is that throughout Europe, companies have been failing. And um, yeah, in the UK, it's very public because the UK has, uh, you know, probably one of the most transparent and dynamic uh, competitive energy markets. Uh, and frankly, a bunch of the companies in it were already in, you know, kind of marginal economic circumstances. So the crisis precipitated a market shakeout that was inevitable anyway. So I could come in there. I mean, one of the things that we keep hearing in the UK, but also elsewhere, is that, you know, the, and I don't believe in that, but the, the argument that's being made is that um, the gas price crisis really is the result of overinvestment in renewables and underinvestment in, in production, uh, domestic production in the UK or domestic production in Europe. What, what do you make of those kinds of arguments and how credible are they really, Greg? Yeah, I mean, the scale of the global supply chain issues that caused this. Well, it means that, you know, the UK imagining that its own storage, for example, would have prevented this is like, uh, you know, putting up a tent in a hurricane. Uh, you know, there may be some shelter, but it won't last long. Um, and it's not going to hold off the storm. Uh, when it comes to UK production, um, energy, gas, gas is a globally traded commodity. Um, our production would have been sold internationally. In fact, I think something like 75% or something of the gas we're producing at the moment is being sold globally. So, uh, you know, to make a dent in the global price, you'd have to be producing a globally significant amount of gas. Uh, and, and that's non, non-credible. Um, so I guess, you know, it would have made something of a difference, but nowhere near enough to have staved off the crisis. This idea of renationalizing the energy market so we are independent from these global markets. What do you say to people who make that sort of argument? There are two factors here, I think. I mean, the first one on the nationalization. Um, hey, look, if people think governments should be incurring the entirety of the losses that energy companies are, <laughs> then, you know, uh, well, that would be the impact, right? So it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't make any difference to the end price unless governments subsidized it more. Um, uh, I think in terms of the, uh, and, and by the way, what we should be clear about is that governments tend not to be as good at running large customer-facing enterprises, particularly in times of dynamic change, as the private sector. Look, and, and if we were to have a, an isolated market, this time we may say, hey, look, that insulates us from the world. I, I have no idea whether we could actually produce and manage enough capacity for that. Um, but even if we did that, it would mean that, you know, Next time there's a sort of uh, a production crisis here, we wouldn't be able to buy it from anywhere. It, 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 isolationism doesn't work, right? We don't do it in any other market because the vast majority of the time we actually rely upon and benefit from that international trade. I think France could tell a story about that as well with their nuclear <laughs> fleet out. They were important, importing from all sides. If I may, I, I'd like to ask, having seen all this, uh, utilities crumbling. Do you think there's a need to to regulate more the, the procurement strategies and, I don't know, obligate uh, a minimum share of long-term contracts to not be so exposed or something? Uh, I think 
because uh, it's only in the UK, and there are versions of this in other countries, but there are essentially guarantees in place to look after customers. For example, in the UK, um, your credit balance is protected if your company goes bust. Uh, And it's protected because the rest of the industry will uh, pay for your credit balance. Because there's that kind of social insurance scheme, energy companies going bust does have an impact on everyone else. There is a social impact. I think because of that, uh, there is a need for um, some form of regulation to um, make sure energy companies are not run imprudently. And so, uh, for example, stress tests that check that, you know, the period over which you're selling energy is matched by the period over which you're buying it. Something like that might be um, a sensible measure uh, to prevent the equivalent in energy of what happened in, in the financial crisis of, of exactly. uh, you know, yeah. selling long and buying short. Yeah. But it needs to be very light touch. Um, I think one of the big contributors to this has been over-regulation. Uh, you know, energy companies, energy suppliers, retailers have got such a, a thin sliver of the value stack. And so much of it is determined by uh, regulation and regulated costs, prices, and everything else. That um, first of all, the companies are infantilized, uh, and, and secondly, they haven't got any levers to pull to bring better value to customers, other than you know, crazy unsustainable pricing. So I think we need to deregulate as much as we regulate, but the regulation we have should be uh, sensible and properly enforced. Give me an example of what you think can go in terms of regulation and would help innovation? Yeah, the price that we pay to access the grid or distribution networks for electricity um, is entirely laid down in regulation and it's essentially flat. So at times when the grid is half empty, we still say pay the same price to put a marginal electron on the grid as we do the rest of the time, as we do when it's full. This is bonkers. If that was airlines, you know, they'd be selling the seats at any price to fill them. If it was hotels, you know, they'd be filling those rooms at marginal cost. Um, so that's an example of where the, the, the kind of regulated pricing that's designed to be fair actually um, penalizes sensible use of fixed cost infrastructure. I completely agree with that, Greg. And I think the other element is locational, because in lots of countries in Europe, we also don't have any locational differentiation of network tariffs. They're just flat across the whole country. There's no sort of incentive to position generation in a certain location compared to another or to consume in a certain location compared to another. So that's another area where uh, you know, I certainly think we could do a lot more to provide better incentives for people to interact with the energy system much more sensibly. What do what, what you sort of make of those kinds of arguments around sort of more locational pricing signals like we have them in the US, for example? Yeah, we desperately need to move to a far more sensible system, uh, potentially along the way uh, you described. Um, look, I think it was Stalin that decided that Kazakhstan would be where wheat was grown. Uh, to make bread for the Soviet Union. It was a bad choice. Um, It wasn't really a great wheat growing area. Far more sensible in markets is to let the people who are going to sell the bread work out where they're going to grow the wheat. 
And it's the same with energy, right? You know, we have governments that decide how much of each kind of generation we need. Uh, by the way, I'm doing my fingers there in a sort of uh, quote marks because <laughs> it's it, it's so um, clunky and um, it assumes that the need is uh, exogenous. Uh, whereas the reality is, you know, for example, uh, you know, we could stick some wind turbines up in a place that's particularly windy um, and then encourage people in that area to buy electric cars. We could match the supply and the demand, take petrol cars off the road um, and do so using spare capacity on the grid, charging those car batteries at off-peak times. The total economic cost of that would be dramatically lower than, than the kind of current world we have, which just kind of moses along with no indication of where and when it is a good idea to uh, generate and use electricity. Now, in the old world, you know, where you turned on a fossil fuel power station, you got a, a rectangle of power, you know, grids would wake up in the morning or governments could look ahead at the next decade and they'd kind of know what the demand pattern looked like and they'd turn on these rectangles and they'd stack them to meet the need at any given time. But today, you know, a grid wakes up in the morning and it looks at the weather forecast um, and, you know, what it should then be doing is shifting demand around to meet generation. Uh, and that isn't just a daily process. You know, you could be doing it across a couple of weeks. You know, the UK has got terribly difficult weather to forecast. And yet we can still forecast here with pretty good accuracy our uh, wind and solar production for each generating site over the next couple of weeks. Well, if we know that information, it is bonkers. They're not kind of, for example, if there's going to be a few days with very little wind, we should be, you know, dramatically reducing the amount we charge car batteries. Drivers don't need to think about it. They just plug in and our machine learning knows what their driving habits are, make sure they've always got enough to meet the needs. Um, but it makes sure that over the next few days we use as little as possible, ready to fill our boots when the wind kicks back in and fill those batteries with lovely, clean, green electrons. That's the way we should be running the system. And yet, you know, the entirety of it assumes demand doesn't shift um, it tries to create rectangles out of renewables, which is extremely expensive. So like, renewable in, in the world we've got today, we have zigzag electricity generation and we should make the most of the peaks, not, you know, try to fill the troughs for rectangles. And we have increasingly shiftable demand, which we should make the most of. Well, what are the answers for those days where the troughs are weeks and maybe even months long if you know there's no wind at all okay there might probably is a bit of sunshine but is it a case of having too much capacity well we can talk about the end state right so where do we want to go we want to go to a zero carbon world and uh the first thing we do is it's, it's usually windy somewhere right we just need long connections between countries we need wind around every kind of coastline of the uk so you're catching the wind when it's present um, and then, um, you know, we need cables to North Africa, uh, like the X-Links project. Uh, disclosure, I'm a personal investor, although on a very small level there. But, you know, we start linking um, uh, wind and solar. So we're grabbing when it's available. Uh, and then we build a system so that we are uh, designing our demand for times when we have abundant green electricity. By the way, this isn't inconvenient to people creates unbelievably cheap energy you know you can say to industries hey look you know uh you're gonna get cheaper energy than you've ever had before but there might be a few weeks or a few months a year 
right? A few weeks, a month or two year, when you have rather less, right? You build your patterns to bear that in mind. Uh, it, this isn't crazy, by the way. It's how we make food, right? So <laughs> a global food supply is largely built on making the most of the weather. Balancing the seasons. Stuff we eat, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Now, uh, it only feels unusual because we've got used to a different way of using energy, an yeah. expensive and destructive way. This is a cheap way. Um, now, you know, there are still going to be times when we don't have enough. So in the end state, we'll have things like battery storage and hydro storage and hydrogen storage. Um, and there'll be new forms of storage, which are very cheap. But, but I mean, batteries have got, I think, 88% cheaper over the last decade. 88% cheaper, All right? We don't have to carry that on for long. Uh, green electricity has got you know, 50 to 80% cheaper depending on how you're generating it. So you're putting ultra-cheap electrons in ultra-cheap storage. That works brilliantly. Now, the transition to get us there, right? Well, you know, we started this conversation talking about the fossil fuel crisis. Um, uh, we need to look at gas as being uh, a gap filler, right, exactly. during the transition. So gas shouldn't be our... Um, purpose fuel, yeah. Exactly, right? It shouldn't be the, the kind of base fuel. Yeah. We should be building wind and solar like Bilio, um, filling the gaps in wind generation with uh, gas. And what we find, by the way, is the whole system gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper to the point that it gets cheaper to replace gas with battery or other forms of storage, uh, shifting demand around. And before you know it, we'll turn off the gas and we'll wonder why we ever had it. But that will take a few years, right? So let's say next winter or the winter thereafter. Um, I saw on Twitter that actually, you know, this gas prices crisis isn't far from over, that already these contracts are expensive. Uh, so what do you tell critics then? I mean, the batteries, when are they going to be in place? So how many winters more? Yeah. It's so funny, isn't it? When Steve Jobs stood up and launched the iPhone in 2006-7, um, no one said to him, And when are you going to be able to have QR codes read by a camera that enables to have a vaccine passport that means that we can open up the economy otherwise we're during a pandemic? Technology doesn't work like that, right? The way technology works is you build what you've got to the maximum extent you can, and then you keep on improving it. And, um, you know, one of the challenges with, with energy is, uh, and forgive me uh, for this, but, you know, we've got gazillions of people who are trying to forecast the future we need to be building it, right? And, and the quicker we build it, it's like a chess game. All the pieces are on the board at the beginning of the game. Both players can see the pieces. Neither of them knows where they're going to be in a, a few moves time. The only way of finding out is to get moving the pieces. That's how we have to move our system. And the problem with energy is, because it's not a free market, you know, with the iPhone, Apple could romp ahead, create this device that, you know, by the way, Nokia had tested and said would never work because they didn't do it as well as Apple. Um, but the Apple could romp ahead and do it. Then Google could invent Android and loads of other companies could create hardware. And the pace of change was remarkable. Here, because everyone wants to debate it. I mean, we, we didn't have a debate about, you know, is Swift key better than, you know, spell check with a thumb-based key? It, it, the world innovation reveals itself and that's what we have to do in energy i have a question about energy markets i mean you you just said yourself greg that it's not a free market you know it's a heavily regulated market that you operate in and that your competitors and partners operate in 
Uh, and I think actually ne on the next podcast, we're going to talk about um, energy markets specifically. You know, there are lots of ideas sort of floating around now in, on social media. How can we reform energy markets? You know, should we put an end to the way how we trade electricity? What needs to change? What, what are your thoughts on you know, how fit are energy markets for this massive transition? You know, we have only 14 years, less actually, I think 13 years or something, something until we have to meet those sort of zero emissions goals in the power sector that are in place in many countries. You know, how, how are we going to achieve that? What are markets um, having to do um, to, to make that happen? I, the first thing is, let's be clear how terrible they are at the moment. Um, electricity, are? yeah, they're terrible. Electricity leaves the farm, the, the wind farm, the solar farm, whatever, you know, in the UK, uh, I don't know, four and a half P a kilowatt hour. By the time it's in someone's house, it's 17p. Uh, by the way, these are pre-crisis numbers. I mean, it's still 4.5p to make at the moment, but by the time it's in someone's house, it's currently 30 or 35, right? Um, uh, so it's going up, even in normal times, it's going up three and a half fold between the farm, the solar farm, the wind farm, and the home. Milk leaves the farm at 69 pence for two litres. And by the time it's in Tesco, it's, I don't know, one pound and nine. Um, it's gone up, I don't know, 50%. For that 50%, milk is schlepped around motorways in diesel trucks. Um, it's pasteurized, it's bottled, it sits on the most expensive refrigerated shelves in the supermarket. And it's only gone up by 50%. Not sure comparing to milk is a good idea in an EU. <laughs> it well, comes with its problems on its own also for the producers. But I see where you, you're going. You can choose your product. You can choose your product. <laughs> the point being, right? Um, energy is astonishingly inefficiently kind of delivered to consumers. So when we look at the current you know, price crisis, you know, we talk about the fact you know, fossil fuels are three or four times more expensive than they were a year ago. It's kind of crazy that most of the time, electrons are three or four times more expensive by the time they get to your house than they were when we paid for them. And that's not because we're profiteering. It's because the astonishing you know, cost we have to pay. I worked in fast-moving consumer goods, you know, um, for Procter and Gamble in the 1990s, when supermarkets introduced something called cross-docking, and that was like, you know, they would give us a 15-minute slot when our lorry had to turn up at um, a distribution centre, uh, and that's because 80 suppliers' lorries would be down one side of the distribution centre, and 80 of their lorries down the other to go to their supermarkets, and the products didn't touch the shelves in the in the warehouse. They literally went from one lorry to another. Um, cross-docking, bits coming off each lorry. It's an astonishing logistical feat. That was done in the 1990s to save a few percent of a few percent of the distribution cost. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I look at, you know, the way grids and, and, and distribution networks work. And, and so often, uh, you know, we just get told every year, this is our cost. And without the competitive pressure and the, um, the discovery process of, of, of cheaper ways of doing things, costs dramatically higher than they need to be. So the first thing is just to say, as one example there, how we all massively overpay, and that holds back net zero. Because when you've got zero marginal cost production, you know, we can buy electrons for a penny when the wind's blowing. It still costs us 10 or 12 or whatever pence to get them to consumers. We've got to change that. So what we need is, a great example for me was, um, I was chatting with uh, someone from the regulator and, and I was kind of making this point. And I said, look, you know, when, when one of our customers has got solar panels and there's another customer next door, 
we'll pay the person who's got solar panels on a five pence for the to generate. And by the time it's next door, it's 17p. Um, uh, and I said, look, we're, we're kind of paying 10, 12p to access 10 meters of wire. It would be cheaper to put our own wire in. And the regulator said, yeah, but then I'd have to fine you. <laughs> it's like, how do we live in a world where that is the right answer? So, um, you know, I guess for me, we need to dramatically open up the networks so that um, companies who can get consumers to use electrons when they're cheap pay dramatically less to access the grid and the distribution network. By the way, if we're, you know, insisting on using electrons when they're expensive, we pay a fortune to use the network. You know, dynamic pricing. Um, it works in transport, you know, where you've got a lot of fixed infrastructure, uh, you know, trains, planes, whatever. We desperately need it in energy. So I think dynamic pricing, preferably competitive access to grids and networks. So, you know, um, a bit like we're now seeing in, in broadband, um, where you're finally getting private providers putting their own uh, infrastructure in uh, to compete with the regulated infrastructure that's there. Uh, you know, we just need to say we need to go hell for leather to allow innovation uh, to unlock investment in renewables and to drive down costs for consumers. And uh, just to be clear, not a UK expert, but you are offering already this dynamic pricing tariffs in the UK. I was first a bit surprised because I thought, hmm, how much solar does he have? I always assumed you need a lot of solar to have a day night difference, but apparently you can do it. So it works. No, you are you are already rewarding your customers and they take it up. Right. What you touched on there is an incredibly important feature of capitalism that is often forgotten in economic uh, in energy which is that the price reflects many features of a product it reflects supply and demand at a given moment in time and each of those reflects many features uh, so uh, you talked about solar and solar is one part of the supply equation um, uh, and then we can look at demand you know um, Uh, for example, uh, in most European countries, peak, there's peak demand in the early evening because of the overlap between uh, household usage and business usage. Um, so dynamic pricing kind of reveals all of these different signals into a single variable. And when, when governments and regulators try and construct stuff, they, you know, they say to us things like, why don't we have a special uh, tariff for heat pumps? And you go, well, that's great, but the same house may also have an electric car. So are you saying they'll get cheap electricity for their heat pump, but not for their car? Or are they going to pretend that their car is a heat pump? Forget all that kind of special case stuff that solar gets this and wind gets that. Just let's use price, which embeds all of these variables. And then you can optimize this. Again, by the way, any, any uh, mathematician or um, uh, statistician knows that, you know, optimizing one variable creates efficient systems. Trying to optimize two or more variables creates inefficiency and ambiguity. So there we go. Just give us a price, right? Allow a price to do all of the work. And then um, don't try and, not, not to you guys, obviously, but generally speaking, let's not try and have all these special cases. It's bonkers. I have a question about um, how consumers react to those dynamic prices. We just had a long discussion yesterday internally. Um, and you know, one of the things that we regularly hear 
is that consumers um, are not interested in energy. You know, they're not going to follow price signals. They're not going to adapt their behavior. So that's sort of one line of argument against dynamic pricing. The other one is, um, you know, look at Texas in uh, you know, last year, about February, actually almost a year ago, um, where people on dynamic tariffs in Texas um, had, you know, some of them had, I think, energy bills tenfold or twentyfold what they were usually because they were on a dynamic tariff. And we had an energy crisis in, in Texas with a massive cold spell and people living in very inefficient homes and their, their heating systems. Uh, you know, running at full capacity. So th those kinds of two arguments that, that we keep hearing that, you know, on the one hand, people are not responding to these economic price signals because they're, they're too complicated and people just don't, don't want to plug in and they don't want to sort of follow what happens with, with the price. And on the other hand, um, you know, how can we protect people um, from sort of hardship if they opt into dynamic tariff? What's, what's your response to that, Greg? Yeah, so let's deal with the, the, the Texas question first. Fortunately, Octopus operates in Texas. And by the way, we have dynamic pricing there. Um, uh, we do in Texas what we do with dynamic pricing in the UK, which is we cap the rate. It's very easy to prevent. There was one company, Gridy, who just had uncapped dynamic rates. Uh, by the way, and I think they were planning to bring a cap in. And it was, unfortunately, they, they just scheduled to bring it in what turned out to be too late. But, uh, you know, there are myriad, infinite ways in which you can create dynamic tariffs um, and Octopus, simply by capping it, prevents those issues. Uh, by the way, we can hedge you know, that cap the way that we hedge energy for fixed price customers. It's just a kind of different hedging process. Um, uh, and one thing we've definitely discovered is the way different formulae react to wholesale distribution and grid charges. Um, and, and so there are so many different formulas you can use. And, and, you know, the world is ready for other people to find different ways to, to kind of construct dynamic pricing. So, uh, you know, we're looking here at an almost infinite map and we've uncovered a tiny number of squares. Uh, so there's tremendous work to be done. In terms of that question about, you know, what people want and what they kind of react to. Um, the first thing is... Um, I often think of it a bit like the yellow labels in a supermarket. The yellow labels in the UK usually mean discounted. Um, uh, you know, so the supermarket will put a discount label on a packet of mints before it's, you know, sell-by date. And um, that means that some people react to the price signal and buy the mints that otherwise wouldn't have done. So I go to Tesco and I've already decided what I'm going to buy and I ignore the yellow label. But my mum goes to Tesco, she sees the minces on half price, and she decides tonight she's going to have bolognese. All right? um, so some people react to the price signal and some don't. Uh, both people benefit. Um, my mum benefits because she gets half price meat. I benefit because Tesco experiences less food waste and therefore doesn't need to push up its prices to cover the food waste. Um, it's the same in energy. If some people like the dynamic pricing and, and, and can make most of it, it reduces demand for electrons at peak time. So that reduces um, both the competition that would otherwise push the price of electrons up at peak time. I, everybody gets cheaper electrons at peak time. And it reduces the need for infrastructure. So we don't need to spend as much money on copper. Um, now, that kind of interplay between the people who want dynamic pricing and the people who don't benefits everybody and i think this gets 
it's particularly important as we move into a world of things like electric vehicles and decarbonized heating when we're going to put putting large but shiftable loads onto the grid so you know if people come home from work and plug in an electric car you've suddenly got a seven kilowatt load at peak time this is disastrous if on the other hand their charger or their phone or their energy retailer or their car is using price signals to move the demand away from that peak time it's great news for everybody. In fact, they can fill their car up with electrons that would otherwise have been thrown away in the middle of the night when demand is low. And that battery is storing these, you know, surplus, super cheap electrons for everybody's benefit. So, you know, to me, these ideas about what customers do and don't want. Oh, the, the other thing I've got to say, right? Um, look, I personally have dealt with 30,000 customers since we started the business. Um, I've emailed them, tweeted them, and spoken to them on the phone. Um, and most of the people who tell me what customers want find out because they had a focus group and they ran a survey. Uh, again, back in the 1990s at Procter & Gamble, one thing we learned was how meaningless customers' reactions and focus groups and surveys. I, in fact, uh, what was it? Apple. The reason the iPhone exists is you know, Nokia tested and asked customers if they wanted a touchscreen internet device for a phone, and they said no. Apple had the confidence that this device was so good, it would change what people thought. So we, this is one of the many reasons we need kind of energy retailers to add massive value by understanding customers, not, you know, kind of, um, I know, technicians and, and, and forgive me, technicians and bureaucrats asking customers theoretical questions about what they want. Because with the best one in the world, people don't know what they want until they have the opportunity to buy something. I start to think the new utility, which is the title of today's podcast, does it need people that come from the digital world? Because somehow they seem to understand, I don't know, exponential growth rates for PV better, which I still don't after two years of Corona. Um, is it? It seems to yes. be. I think that's a great observation. The fresh, fresh eye, fresh look. Yeah. It's a great observation. And um, look, I don't think they necessarily need to be people from a digital background, but I think we have a tremendous amount to learn by looking at the you know, digital world. And I should say, by the way, Octopus Energy's founders, digital background. Um, uh, and the people from Uber, by the way, the people who started Uber didn't come from the cab industry. And, you know, the people from Amazon weren't previously a bookshop owner. Uh, definitely, you know, digital world, uh, looks at a sector totally differently. Now, you gave the example there about exponential growth, which is one of the critical things, isn't it? And um, we talked earlier about the fact batteries are 88% cheaper than they were a decade ago. Throughout governments and energy consultancies, there'll be models that kind of show that improvement stops. Right? We, we see the IEA curve. By the way, IEA is doing incredibly good oh, work. Oh, the famous OK thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, the UK government department, Bayes, every, every government's doing these curves where they go like, uh, after a decade of improvement, everything tails off. And every year it goes, oh, it didn't tail off. Right? Yeah. You know, if you come from computing, from technology, you know about Moore's Law, which is pretty much held since the 1960s. That's the, I mean, however you define it, but roughly the doubling of computing power over 18 months, right? Um, uh, now, it's not to say these things will carry on forever, but people from a traditional background seem to be determined that this was the last year, of, next year is going to be the last year of improvement. It never happens. 
And um, on the same point, actually, for fossil fuels, you see the opposite, right? The prediction is much more bullish. Oh, there's still going to be a massive amount of coal and gas in the system in five or 10 years' time. You can draw the same curve and you see exactly the opposite is the case. You know, actually, it's going down a lot faster because people totally underestimated the disruption that was happening to the system. So I always find that fascinating to look at both of these graphs in combination yeah. where we completely get it wrong on both sides. Exactly. And, and by the way, where you see grid operators going, uh, oh, wow, electricity demand seems to be lower than it was a decade ago. And no shit, sir, look, we've had these efficiency programs. You know, the, the light bulbs in this room, there's what, one, two, three, four, five, six light bulbs in this room, and collectively they'll use less energy than a single light bulb did a decade ago. You know, lighting's irrelevant in terms of energy, right, these days, order of magnitude. Electric cars, by the way, again, if you've come from a digital background, you're used to seeing these things explode from nowhere, right? And yeah, I, I, again, Jan, actually, another curve we can all laugh at is, you know, the electric vehicle adoption curve, which every year was going, oh, there are, it's a bit better, a bit, a bit more extreme than we thought. And it's a bit sooner, uh, you know, and now in the UK, last month, 25% of all cars sold had a plug. Um, you know, this change is happening around us incredibly quickly. Uh, but, uh, you know, another one, I think, in terms of digital thinking is uh, something that I'm really quite obsessed by at the moment, which is subtractive thinking. Um, uh, because one of the things that makes energy expensive is we keep layering on solutions. For example, I, I said, said earlier, there's all this pressure, there's all discussion about do we have a heat pump special tariff? Uh, by the way, energy retailers may, but we certainly shouldn't have, you know, grid and distribution networks and, you know, so on, uh, having these kind of special arrangements for a heat pump. Um but the temptation there is to go like, oh, heat pumps look a bit like this, so we need to do a special thing. And, and so you end up with um, a regulatory system and an economic system that's got layer after layer after layer of complexity. Um, and yet when we look at what enables tech to transform the world, it's usually through simplicity. Um, so, you know, my favorite example is when Uber launched and for the first sort of, I don't know, five or more years, you couldn't book a cab in advance. Um, it only did real time. Now, anybody from the cab industry designing a, an app would have said, you cannot launch without the ability to book in advance because let's say you couldn't arrange to go to an airport or a train or anything that was time critical. Um, but what Uber, as technologists knew, was that if you allow booking in advance, you've got to deal with so many exception cases. You know, the driver forgets, they're late, they get stuck in traffic, the consumer changes their mind. Um, there are all these kind of scenarios that are hard to code for. Now, bureaucrats and, and, and regulators um, and, and people from a traditional business background don't understand the complexity they build when they say to the technologists, um, you know, we need to have these features. Mm -hmm. but it kills the ability of technology to drive down cost. And so, you know, one of the things you find in technology companies, it's a fascinating thing when people join our company, right? So we build a lot of tech in our company. And when people join it from other companies, they frequently are like, I can't get any tech built. I thought we were a tech company. And it's like, exactly. We're not going to build all that stuff you're asking for because it will only make it complicated and shit. Sorry for the language. Um, so, yeah, the incredible choicefulness and, and discipline is so important. And I think when we look at energy, like I think earlier on we talked about, you know, for example, I think one of the things that will make the system more reliable, robust and, and cheaper and better for customers is dramatically reducing the amount of regulation. And it's really for that kind of reason. 
Thanks again to Siemens Smart Infrastructure for supporting What Matters. Combining the real and the digital world, Siemens Smart Infrastructure enhances the way people live and work and significantly improves efficiency and sustainability. Is regulation uh, important in the digital side of things as well? Um, to what extent do we need to change data access rules and data ownership? Is that a, a huge uh, barrier to uh, maximizing digitalization in the energy system? There's loads of talk about opening up data, and that's you know fine. I mean, obviously, in some countries, there's a great emphasis on data privacy, like Germany. And, you know, we, but the reality is the data is pretty meaningless without price signals, right? So, uh, you know, you, you can look at all the data. We sit on 300 billion rows of data as a company, uh, probably more now because obviously so many goes up very quickly um, for things like every half hour of use on every smart meter and forecasting every half hour for the next two years. And it's useful for trading and hedging, but it's it could be 10 times more useful if we had access to price signals, as we discussed earlier, for grid distribution network, if we could build our own generation where we want it, you know, data without the ability to drive economics is interesting, but fundamentally not going to change anything. Jan, we need to ask more questions about heat pumps, right? Uh, well, that's, that would have been my next question, actually, um, because, of course, that's my pet subject um, as a <laughs> proud heat pump owner. Um, and someone you must who be has, freezing. It must uh, be so uh, cold. Yes, <laughs> people always ask me this question, Greg. You know, um, uh, I know you're joking, but people always ask me, you know, "Are you keeping warm?" And uh, then I, I never, whenever I share something on social media, so, there will always be someone who says heat pumps don't work in Britain, like they don't work in old houses. And I always say, "Well, they kind of work in mine." And I show them the temperature curve, which is like it's 21 degrees. It's nice and toasty. No, but Jan, physics doesn't work in Britain. No, it's different. It stops at the border. Yeah, heat pumps uh, are quite nationalist. They just don't like working in Britain. But no, it's a serious question um, because I know that Octopus has um, massively invested in R and D around heat pumps, and uh, I think it's in Slough where you've built sort of a warehouse, you know, bespoke, trying to work out how most efficiently and effectively install heat pumps. Can you tell us a bit more and our listeners a bit more about what's going on with heat pumps? Uh, in the UK, but also sort of more broadly, where do you see them fit in? And so when can we buy an octopus heat pump? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, uh, we're investing in heat pumps because um, uh, our assessment was they're the only cost-efficient way to decarbonize heating. Uh, let's quickly talk about why we made that assumption uh, or assessment. Uh, so um, if we're going to decarbonize heating, there are looks like two routes, electric heating, direct electric heating, or hydrogen, burning hydrogen. Um, and uh, if you're going to burn hydrogen, the two most obvious sources are you know, green hydrogen made uh, using green electricity or um, um, uh, brown hydrogen uh, using, uh, sorry, blue hydrogen using uh, methane. And um, uh, to make blue hydrogen, we need to make some very big assumptions about what we're capable of um, in terms of the engineering and, and the cost, uh, because we need to be able to uh, sequestrate a lot of carbon. Um, and uh, Malcolm Turnbull, the former Australian Prime Minister, 
was talking about this and he said, look, um, uh, it's never worked at scale. And, um, and, and someone corrected him. He said, all right, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, 95 times out of 100, it has failed at scale. And, and, and we live in a world where, you know, I don't know what the exact stats are, but the point really is we don't know whether it can be done at scale. The scale would need to be colossal. And either way, if you're starting with methane and then you're doing a load of stuff with it, it's going to be more expensive than methane. So what we can say is absolutely certainly it's going to be more expensive than, than um, our current gas heating, uh, probably dramatically more. And we've got to make a bunch of assumptions, which you may not want to make about the capability to move the engineering on. If we're going to do with green hydrogen, then what we know is that for uh, every kilowatt hour of electricity, uh, by the time we're burning it in people's homes, maybe we'll have 0.4 kilowatt hours of heat, maybe 0.5. So end to end, with the best possible assumptions, you need to generate roughly twice as many kilowatt hours of electricity as you're going to get in heating. But with a heat pump, for every kilowatt hour of electricity you generate, you get two and a half to three and a half kilowatt hours of heat. I mean, obviously some people go, no, you get five with a ground source heat pump or whatever. But the point really being, it's multiple hundreds of percent efficient. So it's a multiple times more efficient than hydrogen, than green hydrogen, if you're going to use it to start with electricity. Um, so from our perspective, we're like, look, that means heat pumps are going to be the most cost efficient way of generating heat if you're starting with electricity. Uh, so we looked at heat pumps and, and, and kind of said, you know, they are more expensive than, than gas boilers today. What can we do to bring the cost down? Um, and um, when you start looking at heat pumps, there are loads of things to reduce the cost. Um, I think it was Michael Dell, when he was a student, read an article that an IBM PC that retailed for $3,000 had less than $1,000 of components. And decided that you know he would um, create a direct selling model um, to bring the cost of the hardware closer to the cost of the components, and that created Dell, um, you know, the global computing giant. If we look at heat pumps, the same applies. The, the total cost of the components is a multiple of, uh, sorry, is a fraction of the cost of the device that we buy. And then when we look at um, the installation process. Heat pumps today are installed by superb, usually uh, well-trained, experienced um, craftspeople. Um, And there's a huge role for that, but it's expensive. And if we can come up with standardized processes for installing at volume, then we can bring the installation cost down. And actually, um, if uh, at the moment, most heat pumps in the UK are going into homes of people who are quite well off, because they've been able to buy the more expensive hardware and pay the more expensive installers for a system that they're getting not for cost reasons, but they're typically getting because they um, have an ethical belief or indeed uh, you know, access to very generous um, government grants. Um, but that means that heat pumps are going into really hard to heat homes. Uh, the biggest, leakiest listed buildings. I, you know, I get people coming to me quite often going like, oh, you know, one of my friends got a heat pump and, and uh, you know, it's costing them a lot in electricity. I say, well, do they live in a listed building? Is it detached in the country? And, it, and it's like, <laughs> we're literally taking the hardest homes that are hard and expensive to heat with gas. And we are then surprised when a heat pump is also, you know, expensive. 
So our view is what we need to do is get heat pumps into, you know, to begin with, modern homes. 40% of UK housing stock is 1970s and more recent in its design. Um, it's more likely to have better thermal properties. Uh, they're much more standardized in terms of the layout and you're not going to run into listed building issues. So if we can get heat pumps into that 40% of homes, we can standardize the installation process. Um, the cost to install and to run will be dramatically cheaper than it is today. And in doing that, we'll bring down the cost for progressively um, more complex homes. That's how you know technology works in any market. As you get to scale, the price comes down. So we, we should be looking for the scale solutions. And you know, understandably, a lot of people in, in, in UK energy had been looking at heat pumps as a way of replacing oil in um, homes that are not on the gas grid. Uh, but because they're difficult and they tend to be unique homes, you know, country houses or whatever, you're not getting any standardization benefits. So I think that's the kind of mindset shift that we've really been encouraging is, is to say, you know, let's just go straight for the mass market. That'll bring the cost down and everyone benefits. But so you're saying heat pump alone can work or you'd still promote heat pump plus insulation? I mean, look, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? That, that um, this is the UK, but I mean, uh, some countries have got the same issues, but that we've been burning gas to make up for the fact we've got leaky homes, right? It's, um, you know, it, it, we're not in a sensible place. So, of course, insulation <laughs> is a no-brainer where it's straightforward. But we've also got to recognize, you know, that there are plenty of homes where, uh, plenty of householders who worry about things um, to the insulation. You know, if someone turns up and says you've got to have external wall insulation, um, well, that's pretty disruptive, yeah. right? So yeah. we we really need to be very sympathetic yeah. when we're talking about people's homes to understand where they are. And, and therefore, but I think one of the classic, it's really interesting when people get electric cars, um, it's the gateway drug to understanding energy. Uh, <laughs> no one knows what a kilowatt hour is or what it costs until they get an electric car. And then everyone knows, right? Um, and I, and we're spotting the same um, moves into things like the fabric of the home. People who've got an electric car becoming more aware of energy. And then they think about, you know, what kind of insulation they might like. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think what we can do is capitalize on the, the moments of change and the moments when people see a positive benefit to their life. And that's when they want to do more of it. And the heat pump is going to be the same. You put the heat pump in, people go like, wow, you know, I'd love a clean, green electric boiler, otherwise known as a heat pump. Um, it's a huge improvement to my house and I'm not going to be churning out that relatively unpleasant stuff from the back of the house anymore. Um, and, uh, and while we're there, we say, hey, look, you know, um, here are some relatively simple things we can install to improve the insulation or the thermal properties of your home. We turn the conversation around. I think regulators sometimes said to me, but Greg, you know, we, we, we can't have electric cars because, um, you know, we haven't got enough charging points or we can't have heat pumps because houses aren't insulated enough or we can't um, there was a journalist that said, you know, we can't sell electric cars because there aren't enough smart meters in. I'm like, honestly, sell people an electric car, the first thing they'll do is bang on our door for a smart meter and dynamic pricing, by the way. So we just have to turn the mindset around and understand how consumers, mm -hmm. how people think as consumers. Um, Greg, in uh, Italy, there's a, a program where you can get uh, your house uh, 
insulate the walls and windows and get a heat pump and the government will cost cover the cost by 110 percent uh it's called a super bonus and i was speaking i was speaking to one of my colleagues um about it yesterday uh, she lives in a block of flats and she said i'd it'd be great if I, i'd love to do it to my building and there's a, f- a few other people in the building that want to uh, get it as well but the building administrator seems opposed to it you're saying it'd be great to get heat pumps into 40 percent of those homes since 1970 surely a majority or a, a significant proportion of those homes are in flats and high-rises and inner city buildings and things like that how do we get over that sort of um barrier yeah we get to scale with the ones that are easy um solve easy problems first is kind of the best way of getting taken so Look, during the pandemic, my gran, who is 97 and lives in sheltered accommodation, uh, she's got Parkinson's. Um, she stayed in touch with society through an Android phone, uh, sort of a 50 pound Android phone uh, and an Android tablet, um, 70 pounds. And um, they were only possible because just over a decade ago, um, relatively well healed often quite geeky people queued outside the Apple store for a 400 pound iPhone. And by the way, you know, 35 pounds a month line rental or contract. So the, um, if we'd sat there when, when, when those people were going to the Apple store and going, Oh, well, that's all good for them. But what about my grand? Right. Um, we, you know, we better not, we better not launch the iPhone. until we solved the grand problem. We would never have solved the grand problem. We got there because we addressed the market that was addressable. That got the technology to scale. And you know, when, when you open um, uh, you know, an iPhone now or indeed an Android and look at the settings, there are more capabilities in there for um, uh, accessibility and people with all kinds of conditions that weren't met at the beginning. And the only way we were able to do that was to keep developing the technology. Let's do the same with, with energy and heat pumps. Yeah, it really frustrates me. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of people out there who are looking for problems and they spend most of their time identifying why things don't work, why they're difficult, why they're too expensive, why they can never happen. And I always say to them, look, actually, if you turn that around and you spend all your time looking for solutions uh, and why things can work, where they can already work today and what else is needed to make them better, then we are on, a, on the right path. If it's just looking for the problems, it's never going to help us to get where we need to get. So I find that, especially with energy transition, deeply frustrating, this kind of conservatism of, oh, we can't do anything, we can't change anything, it's all too difficult. That doesn't get us anywhere. And uh, I, I really think we, we ought to take a completely different approach to it. Jan, are you sure you're a chairman? Are you sure? Oh, I, I lived in the UK for 16 years. Uh, <laughs> so I think that, 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 that might be it. But I mean, it's an interesting point, Michaela, because... Uh, having lived in Germany for quite a long time before and growing up there, uh, there is a cultural difference, isn't there, there is. between also the US, even even more profound, this kind of scepticism when it comes to new technologies and digital data sharing. And Greg, um, this is actually one of the things we wanted to ask you about. I mean, you you, you are active in, in, in other markets in Europe and a lot of listeners will be uh, from Europe and will not be from the UK. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more, what's your experience sort of getting into those other markets? How are they different? What do you observe? I think that would be fascinating to hear. I'd love to. Very briefly on that question, we've got to remember that, you know, for example, Tesla spent 10 years being derided by every expert, every automaker, every stock analyst, 
governments were going, oh, it's ridiculous. You know, Tesla's a £100,000 two-seat toy. Um, uh, you know, electric cars can never get scale and, you know, they're only for rich people. Uh, we're just at that kind of inflection point. The, world, the world's going like, oh, maybe Tesla's got a point. As Tesla is now, obviously, its market cap is more than all the other car companies put together. It could fall by a factor of 10 and still have a phenomenal PE ratio. Um, and uh, suddenly we realized that we're on the dawn of electric cars being cheaper than petrol cars. But they spent more than a decade uh, with, uh, you know, not just the traditional cynics, but everyone saying this is nonsense, right? And I think it's difficult, isn't it? Because it does breed that sense of arrogance that, like, you've got to assume everyone else is wrong and you're right, which is terrible. But without someone doing that, we wouldn't be where we are today with, with for example, the electric vehicle revolution and so many other things. Um, now, in terms of um, Octopus uh, entering other countries, uh, I was lucky enough to be working at Procter & Gamble in the 1990s when it went from being essentially a, a multinational a conglomerate with separate entities and brands in every market to a really globalized business where they kind of increasingly try to run the same brand in multiple countries, partly because it would mean that you could have um, you know, a, a dramatically smaller um, sort of central functions, uh, like marketing, sales, finance, and so on, uh, much more efficient for manufacturing and packaging. Um, and of course, it would mean that you could do things like sponsoring a global event like the Olympics because you've got a global brand. And uh, what you discover is, um, and, and when you go through that process, is every country, every management team in every country says we're different. Um, and uh, they'll say, like, uh, therefore, you know, the product will be different, the design will be different, the contents of the bottle will be different, the advertisement. And, and they're kind of right that if you tailor it to the precise needs of every country, each country might be 5 or 10%, sales might be 5 or 10% higher. But in doing so, you lose this massive benefit of being global. And so for Octopus, we decided we're going to be global. And the reason is that it lets us build a single global tech platform, Kraken, um, that serves our customers and indeed we license to third parties in every country. And that means that when we learn something about how, for example, dynamic pricing works in one market, we can immediately deploy it across all markets. Whereas companies, you know, if, today we're present, I think, as a retail entity in, in eight markets, eight countries, and that's growing rapidly. Um, you know, if all eight were pursuing totally different paths, it would be impossible to reapply learnings. And if you can't reapply learnings during a period of such change as, as, as the fight against climate change, you actually slow down the ability to tackle the problem. You know, if, if the iPhone was differently developed in every market, we would not have ended up with the device that my grand could use. And, and in fact, you might remember that. Um, uh, you're probably too young, guys. Uh, but when I was uh, when I was in my twenties, and you know, um, uh, mobile phones were, were, were becoming a sort of you know a universal item. Um, every network, O2, Vodafone, whatever, um, would customize the firmware and the menus on the mobile phones because they felt they, you know, these are our customers. And it was shocking. They were totally unusable. Um, first of all, the actual interaction experience was terrible. You'd have to go through five levels of menu to get to a text message or something. Um, and secondly, it meant that uh, there was no learning. 
because you couldn't reiterate, you know, O2 in Japan couldn't be learning from, well, just a bad example, isn't it? Um, O2 in Germany couldn't be learning from O2 in, you know, Spain because you have different menus. Um, uh, whereas Apple just kind of created this standardized interface. They could iterate very rapidly to evolve the technology. Uh, so I think being really determined to be global is important. Now, some people say, yeah, but regulation varies in every country. Um, uh, but, you know, well, Uber, uh, you know, there's nothing with more hyper-localized regulation than uh, cabs, taxis. Um, and yet Uber created a global platform, a global user experience um, that works in those hyper-localized regulated markets. So, um yeah, I think globalization is going to be critical to drive the energy revolution faster and cheaper as we consumerize it and as the ways we use energy to electric vehicles, electric heating and other things um, vary. A great example would be, by the way, you know, octopus electric heat pumps are going to have uh, the intelligence built in to handle dynamic pricing, uh, to be able to operate sympathetic with a dynamic renewables heavy grid. Now, you don't want to be inventing that kind of software and firmware and understanding, you know, rewriting the way in which you handle thermal dynamics of a home and, you know, the dynamics of a grid and, by the way, how it interacts with an electric car, particularly one with vehicle to grid. You can't be reinventing that in every country and every kind of technology. It has to be global. Absolutely. Greg, thank you. Uh, we're coming uh to the end of our uh, episode today uh, just uh, quickly before we go uh, we ask every guest uh, if they could look into their crystal ball what sort of uh, does the energy landscape look like in 10 or 20 years time um, so yeah what do you think we're going to see in the next couple of decades and how, how are things going to change uh, we stand at a junction we are going to decarbonize it could be expensive and slow if we follow the path that largely the world is currently on of trying to make renewables a light for light replacement for fossil fuels and trying to help the incumbents, you know, through the change. By the way, no one helped, you know, kind of Argos, uh, that's a UK high street retailer, uh, deal with the threat of Amazon. It just had to make its own investment and, and wrestle its way into, you know, a digital world. Uh, by the way, Argos did a brilliant job of it, not all retailers did. Um, so we could have an expensive slow, consumer-unfriendly, bureaucracy-driven, incumbent-friendly transformation to green energy. Or we can have a faster, cheaper transition to a cleaner world. Um, one where, you know, instead of uh, central bureaucracies looking at energy consumption as exogenous, um, we embrace the power of uh, companies to understand what they think they can sell to consumers, to invest at their own risk, uh, if they see an opportunity to build a wind farm and a local population wants it, they build it. They're not beholden to schemes that are deciding what kind of generation is going to go where. Um, and one where, you know, if uh, where they have dynamic pricing for access to grids and networks, and if grids and networks aren't meeting our needs, we just build new infrastructure ourselves. That world will be cheaper and faster um, and a pathway to, you know, a quieter, cleaner world that, by the way, also tackles climate change. And it will be cheaper energy than we've ever had before. We, we haven't talked about all the... By the way, it's so exciting, right? We, we've discovered a bunch of customers we've got using dynamic uh, pricing to run vertical farms, indoor farming. Uh, they're growing soft fruit and veg um, in the towns and cities where it's going to get consumed. 
instead so instead of schlepping, you know, kind of the air miles to bring fruit and veg around the world, you're growing it where you need it. And the energy is, um, you know, using renewable energy with dynamic pricing. The plants sleep when the wind's not blowing, the sun's not shining. Um, isn't this incredible? You just look at how many industries can be transformed. Heavy industry can come back. Um, powered by cheap green energy. Um, you know, we open up uh, a, a dramatically better world if we allow this dynamism to occur and to change the way we live for the better through cheap, cheap, cheap green energy. It's a, you know, it's the next industrial revolution will be driven by energy as well if we do it this way, but clean energy this time. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, and just finally then, uh, just go around the table and say what caught my eye this week. Uh, what sort of, did anyone see a specific tweet or a news report or anything that really uh, stuck with them? Uh, Jan, at all, did you, what was your, what caught your eye this week? Uh, so there's there's actually two items that came out. Um, uh, one is an IRENA report on uh, hydrogen and the geopolitics of hydrogen. And there's a graphic in there, uh, which I shared and was widely shared on, on social media with a priority matrix, if you will, of you know, where should we use hydrogen? And the one area where I've always said we should not use hydrogen, at least for the vast majority, is residential heating. And it's it's at the bottom uh, of, the, of the hierarchy that IRENA put out. And then McKinsey, uh, a few days later, also produced a new study, and they project kind of what's the world going to look like in 2050 uh, for all the sectors. And again, I sort of look at the heating sector, you can't even see hydrogen in the graph. Um, so I, I think what we talked about before, you know, heat pumps playing such a critical role, yeah, there seems to be this kind of emerging consensus uh, amongst a wide variety of stakeholders, you know, from International Energy Agency, IRENA, McKinsey, but also research, academia, that really the way to go is electrification. May I quote uh, one of my favorite slides ever from one of my colleagues at Agora? All experts agree, but not yet all lobbyists. Yeah, I think that's the that's the key there. Is experts may agree, but we need the lobbyists and the governments to come around to that way of thinking as well. Um, Michaela, uh, what caught your eye this week? Yeah, that was the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Renewables Investment Report. And uh, I saw tweets about it, how they say, wow, investments into electrification of transport are really on the path of overtaking investment in renewables. And my first thought was like, whoa, that's amazing. Quickly followed by, no, it should be so much more on renewables. I mean, you listen to Greg going on about Moore's law and everything, and then you see a growth rate of, I don't know, 5%. We need to double or triple from now to 2030. Why is this not going any faster? It is, I mean, we just heard it. Absolutely. I agree. Uh, it's yeah, worrying. Um how in some ways slow the renewables investment is is falling and there's i mean there's lots of reasons for that um but i guess greg do you have any sort of thoughts on that look i think um the, the challenge we talked earlier about those curves where uh you know people look at the improvement rate historically and then somehow assume it's going to stop and then you know regulators, governments use those for deciding what we're going to build. Um, and uh, if instead they carried on the growth rate, they'd make very, very, very different decisions. And so I think that the challenge we've got really is each, we're building our future um, based on 
entirely false premises. That means we're building a more expensive future than we need to. And it means it doesn't look as exciting and as attractive as it really will be. And, and every time we get there, people are surprised. And, and we talked earlier about the electric vehicle thing. Right? You only had to look at the cost reduction curve in batteries to realize that electric vehicles were going to become the future. And yet, until just two or three years ago, you know, that was still an idea that, you know, was decades away. And, and by the way, look, electric vehicles are not becoming the future because governments have put in place these bans for 2035 or whatever. It's happening because um, some smart entrepreneurs and some wise investors recognized the cost reduction curve in batteries and a couple of other areas. Um, and we see it in every industry, don't we? Like, why, why did blockbusters go out of business? Why did Borders no longer exist as a book chain globally? You know, why did Nokia go from the front page of Forbes as irreplaceable to not a consumer business in just a few years? It's because, it's because it is extremely hard for incumbents, whether that be you know regulators, companies, governments, uh, consumers, to get their head around these disruption curves. But it's 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 our job to look at those curves and and be brave and invest for a better future. Definitely. Um, just finally, kind of on that point, uh, Michaela, you say that, you know renewables investment uh, isn't fast enough. Uh, the one thing that caught my eye this week was the the new Dutch government uh, and its plans to increase uh, electricity generation. Uh, there was a lot of noise about its uh, nuclear ambitions, uh, but it also um, pledged to almost double its ambition in offshore wind uh, to go from, I think uh, it was planning 11 gigawatts by 2030 to uh, go up to over 22 gigawatts uh, by 2030, which is, uh, I think, a huge um, growth uh, rate, uh, especially for a country the the size of the Netherlands and its demand there and its uh, offshore wind resource. So I think that's the opportunities for the investment are there. Uh, just finally there, and then Greg, uh, what caught your eye this week? Anything in particular? Yeah, look, I, the reports um, that uh, if the UK had not cut its green yeah. uh, green crap the a decade ago, <laughs> energy would have been rather cheap and would be saving billions of pounds through the energy crisis, right? Um, we need to learn from history. Um, if we'd started investing as a nation, but indeed, by the way, uh, as a species in renewables 10 years earlier, we'd be in so much better position today to your questions earlier, we, we just have to unleash this massive green energy revolution now and we will reap the rewards You know, next time there's a fossil fuel crisis. But frankly, regardless, it's going to drive down the cost of energy for society. Um, and the quicker we get on with it, uh, the better society will be. Absolutely. Thank you, Greg. Um, we're going to share all of those links uh, with our listeners uh, on the show notes. So please do look in there if you want to know more. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Greg, thank you so much. I think we could have spoken all day uh, about um, Energy Matters and uh, what Octopus is doing to help. Um, with What Matters, we want to build a community of listeners that are passionate about moving the global energy transition forward. So please do not hesitate to engage with us, give us feedback and share your recommendations for future topics and guests. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we've said today on today's podcast, you can reach out to us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at DaveW underscore Foresight. Greg? Uh, G underscore underscore J. Sorry about the two underscores. I thought I was being clever at the time. Obviously a mistake that I live with. <laughs> uh, Michaela? No underscore. 
At Citizen Sane One. And Jan. Jan Rosenau. No dots, no underscores. <laughs> and no number. And no, and no number. number. Excellent. Uh, you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.